lads and aqua lasses, welcome to a fun new show here in the Aqua Game. We're calling it Bright Man. And thanks so much for tuning in. So why do you want to call it Bright Man, you might say to yourself. Well, there's a couple of things. One, we've already got Star Man here where we talk about the negative star-ranked matches from Dave Meltzer. Uh, not to mention the fact that Starman is also the name of one of the robots in Mega Man. Well, uh, I wanted to find another robot that had a name I could uh, co-op for my own purposes, so I chose Bright Man. Why? Because this show is a show that is going to cover whatever bright idea I have this go-around to talk about. See, I kind of wanted to put together something that wasn't really tethered to... I mean, I don't want to say rules because, you know, it's usually going to be a random topic from wrestling, pop culture, film, comics, something like that. But at the same time, it doesn't force me to have to, you know, talk about the same sort of things over and over and over again. And I thought that that might be enjoyable for everybody. And I wanted to also be bright and shed some light. Yikes, I want to kick myself for even saying that. But maybe shed some light on some random stuff here and there. Throughout these worlds, you know, uh, un- uncover that uh, stone and flash a little light on it and say, hey, is that interesting? Is that as good as I remember it? I don't know. But that's sort of where I'm coming from. And uh, we'll dive into this first topic and see if it's of any interest and uh, see if my bright idea was a good one or not. But I wanted to talk about something that kind of popped into my head, uh, actually, today. Uh, I was listening to a show on North-South where they were talking about, oh, it was like Intercontinental Champions, and uh, for the GWWE project, they were talking about, well, not necessarily Intercontinental Champions, but they were debating the merits of, like, Kofi Kingston and Greg Valentine and guys like that and what have you. And, uh, you know, I I was kind of interested in what they were saying, and uh, I just started kind of thinking off into the ether about Intercontinental titles and how... You know, when I first started wrestle, uh, watching wrestling, there was a very, uh, very, very large and pivotal intercontinental championship-related event that took place that I thought was going to be just the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, granted, I would have been uh, math seven years old at the time. But definitely in the early stages of my fandom, uh, my first show ever was Survivor Series '89. So. Uh, you know, my first Mania was six. You know, the same old story a lot of people have had. But specifically relating to WrestleMania six and the Intercontinental Championship, immediately in the wake of the Ultimate Challenge, the Intercontinental Championship would be declared vacant and a tournament would be held. And I was just, like I said, completely excited. Now, I think at this point in time, I had already been renting tapes, so I would have encountered WrestleMania 4. So I knew what a tournament was, and I knew what a tournament looked like. And to me, WrestleMania 4, I think to a lot of kids who grew up in that era renting tapes, was legendary. I mean, mainly because of its size. It's it's a fine event. There's plenty of stuff to dive into and at least have a nostalgic good time with. But, at you know, you're getting two tapes for the price of one. Well, there's a great thing, and parents love to hear stuff like that. So you say, hey, take me to the video store, rent me this really ass long tape, and I'll stay out of your hair, and you guys can do whatever. Um, you know, so so parents love it, kids love it. I, I was obsessed with it. Um, so when I heard that there was gonna, I was going to be able to get to watch a tournament happen in real time, man, did my expectations raise high. And it's sort of lived in my memory, you know, as a lot of fun, at least interesting to follow. 
But I think, and I did a little reason, you know, obviously I've, I'm doing this show now after I've completed the research, and, you know, it absolutely isn't something that lives up to any sort of high standard, but I think it does really benefit from being something that carried out on weekly television over a pretty decent amount of time that was hard for a kid to want to wait and see what would happen next so it sort of builds that anticipation in your mind you want the answers you want to know what's going to happen and so I wanted to talk about it I figured we'd talk about sort of the uh, rationalization of why it came into B and then maybe talk about the build-up that was put together on television then maybe talk about the matches and as well dive into the brackets the participants just sort of a hodgepodge of man was this a good idea could it have been done better was the right choice made all sorts of things like that and that's the kind of stuff that we're going to be shedding light on here on Brightman. Now, the story can simply be told only with the context of one month, to be brutally honest with you. Even though I said, you know, that as a kid, it, it carried over multiple weeks and multiple months, and it did, and it did to a certain extent. But the entire context of the Intercontinental Championship scenario only lasted one month in real time. And of course, it starts on April 1st at WrestleMania 6 when you get. Champion versus champion, title for title, unprecedented brain, or unprecedented, Jess, in our history. So it is Hogan and Warrior, champion versus champion, title for title, the ultimate warrior wins, and now he has both singles championships in the WWF, all right? And honestly, I had no idea that the Warrior was going to have to give up a championship, and it's kind of funny because... I don't hear a whole lot about this in history. Now, granted, maybe it's because no one's really found an opportunity to talk about it or a reason to talk about it, but I've always sort of remembered in my head that the Warrior chose to surrender the Intercontinental Championship and what have you, and I never really made the logical leaps as to reconcile why. I remembered I had heard something about it, and we're going to get to that here in just due time. But as I mentioned, it all takes place in April. Okay, so the WrestleMania 6 is April 1st, and then there are three television tapings that take place in April as well that will be the entire genesis for our match discussion. There's a taping on April 4th in the home of Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Glen Falls, New York, for superstars. There's a taping on April 23rd in Austin, Texas, for superstars. And then, even though it doesn't make sense to the overall narrative, which we will get into, I promise... The next day, April 24th in San Antonio, Texas, there was a wrestling challenge taping. Now, it stands out as a sore thumb for not being the for being the only taping that wasn't WWF superstars, which is fine, not a huge deal. You got to have challenge tapings as well. But this April 24th wrestling challenge taping uh, is responsible for only one match in the tournament. And it's a very unique scenario that I promise we will get into when we start talking about the matches. All right. But I do like a couple of things about this setup for it. Just to, and you know, this is all background information. You didn't miss when I got into talking about it. I just wanted to sort of dive into the actual time periods of what was happening. And it makes sense because you've spread out the tournament across three different tapings. So no one audience has every piece of the puzzle. And you can, of course, kayfabe that the final match took place most likely on this April 24th taping. That way it happened in quote-unquote real time. Even though you only saw the last piece, I promise the tournament actually happened before. Well, 
that would make sense. It wasn't exactly what happened, but again, we'll get into it when we talk about the one match that happened there. So, the context of the rationalization of the tournament, of why the tournament happened. Let's go in sequential order as to what we were given on WWF television. So, WrestleMania 6 goes off the air on April 1st, and you and me and everybody else knows only one thing. The Ultimate Warrior is the WWF and Intercontinental Champion. So the next time that the WWF would have the opportunity to interact with their fans would be the following Saturday. Uh, well, I guess you could consider, pri- I guess primetime wrestling would have been the second, but I didn't catch any sort of inkling that anything was given on that time frame. Because the next clip or the first actual story content that I got in this saga of the Intercontinental Championship was from the April 8th episode of Superstars. And we go to the WWF Event Center in Connecticut, and I love these video packages because it always let me know as a kid that I was about to, to get some really important information, okay? So it's Mean Gene Okerlund. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm all over the place. I apologize. April 8th uh, Superstars didn't give us the event center yet. That comes later. This is just Mean Gene Okerlund in front of the WrestleMania 6 stage setup. So, you know in the backstage area where uh, you would interview people in front of uh, the sign that says WrestleMania 6 and there's like clouds and everything like that? So it's Mean Gene in that area and he gives a still a recap of the main event of WrestleMania 6 using still photos. Um, it's a very interesting video package because... They do put over really hard how even though the Warrior has won the championship, that Hogan has taken a giant step towards immortality. And it's just interesting because, you know, that gets spoken of a lot in the actual event, but it really carried forward forward on the narrative on the actual wrestling programs as well. So that's not just us misremembering or thinking that that was a bigger deal than it was. It was a big deal, and they chose to run with it. However... Mean Gene has a statement from Jack Tunney because he's already heard a lot of people rumbling around. Will there be a rematch? So you got it because you got to consider, you know, will Hogan get an opportunity to not only win his title back, but to perhaps win the Intercontinental Championship as well? So this one throwaway segment is the answer to the, you know, $64,000 question. If someone's ever wondering, well, why didn't they have a rematch? This is it. And if nothing else, I'm so happy to have stumbled across this while just researching the 1990 Intercontinental Championship Tournament. So, Mean Gene delivers the quote, but it is a direct quote from Jack Tunney. And so, I will deliver it to you as President Jack Tunney. And it absolutely, it's so funny. I don't know who wrote Jack Tunney's material, but they had a fantastic voice. And what I mean by that is, the person that writes these official WWF presidential statements has such a great way of making them all sound like they are delivered from the same person. Now, Jack Tunney's an awful performer, okay? But he uses 16 words when three would suffice, much like myself. And so that's one of the reasons why whoever's writing the Jack Tunney character is just a fucking genius. All right, so Jack's quote is, I cannot in clear conscience allow these two men to once again batter each other beyond a point of exhaustion, 
past the threshold of pain and at the expense of risking torturous injury. Therefore, I will not sanction a rematch in the near future. I will leave both men to pursue their own separate destiny in the World Wrestling Federation. So what he's basically saying is the match was so intense and off the charts in terms of its violence that he can't possibly sanction another match between these two because they'd most likely destroy one another and, uh, you know, end life as we know it, uh, basically, by unleashing so much energy trying to take out one another that there's no possible way that either one would ever be able to continue afterwards. So again, these guys can't fight again because they'll beat each other up too much. Not exactly. It's interesting because my first gut reaction is, wow, that's super weak. They, they, they fought too hard, and now you're not going to let them wrestle again. But I kind of love the idea that if you want to you know, really pull your brain out of it and consider the fact that the 1990 WWF presentation was very kiddie and comic booky and Saturday morning cartoony, that there is no way that these men could possibly combat each other one another one again. It's like you let Superman and Shazam fight one another, and it's like they blow up half of a country, et cetera, et cetera, and beat each other to the point of near death. And it's like, well, if these guys ever fight again, they're probably just going to take the planet with them. Might not be the best example, but it's the first one that popped into my head. So I kind of love the kitschy, comic booky sort of nature of the rationalization. But the adult or the, the person that has a brain inside of me is like, what? This doesn't make any kayfabe sense. But hey, we can't change it. We can simply just talk about it and realize how ridiculous it is. Now, I did get ahead of myself, and I apologize because I'm so excited to talk about this tournament. The next week, the April 14th Superstars, okay, we do get the special report. From the pages of WWF Magazine, this is a special report. Now, I saw two versions of these. The first one that I saw uh, sequentially was with Lord Alfred Hayes. So that's why I'm doing the Lord Alfred Hayes voice. Okay, And again, these types of things made me feel special because it's, number one, a cutaway from the Superstars tapings where you're either getting job matches or maybe every once in a while a one-on-one encounter between like Jumpin' Jim Brunzel and Mr. Perfect. So kind of a job match that isn't a job match. And I, you always kind of knew that you were going to get important information. You were going to get plot developments. It's sort of like in the Attitude Era when the show would open with a Mr. McMahon promo. You knew that you were going to get some sort of maneuvering forward in the plot. Because they were able to film these, you know, separate from the tapings. And, you know, they're in Connecticut. It's just sort of like I could see them coming straight out of the writer's room and being like, all right, Alfred, we need you to, to, to say this into the camera. Now, I'm not saying it happened just like that, but I could see it happening. So, <laughs> Lord Alfred Hayes lets us know that the Warrior having both titles is an unprecedented situation. So, President Jack Tunney had this statement to make. Now, we do actually get to see on the take Jack Tunney in the flesh here. Uh, he is clearly reading from a cue card that's off camera because he spends the entire time looking not into the camera, but at the cue card. And he's got that generic, I'm going to call it brownish tan backdrop, very colorblind. Uh, and again, over his, over his remarks, we do get to see still photos of the ultimate challenge. And most interesting piece of information here, these still photos come to us courtesy of Coliseum Home Video. And they let us know that WrestleMania 6 is going to be available on April 25th. That is a 20. 20- 
24-day turnaround time. Look, I don't care what you say. That's fucking impressive. For an operation that size, I mean, look, these guys are the WWF, okay? They are. But they're not like the Disney Corporation or Touchstone Pictures, a subsidiary of the Disney Corporation. You know, getting these tapes mastered and then created and out into the wild is a time-consuming process. You know, producing all the different boxes. For, I mean, I'm just saying, it's not like, you know, you press a button and you upload it to the cloud so you can stream it. I mean, this is work. And a 24-day turnaround time to consumer means they're probably getting them on the trucks within 20 days to get sent to retailers. I mean, it's just something that's worth pointing out because I don't want that to get lost. That's, if nothing else... I, I'm telling you, that was a huge revelation for me. I was blown away. Anywho, Jack Tunney's all like, thank you, Alfred. He doesn't actually say that. I just say that. As of April 1st, this is actual real content. As of April 1st of this year, World Wrestling Federation history was made with one man holding both the Intercontinental Championship and the World Wrestling Federation title. I don't know why one's a championship and one's a title, but I digress. Here's the important part. Here's what changes history forever and also makes quite an assumption about the content of the Ultimate Warrior's character. Since it is obvious that no one man can properly fulfill the requirements of both title defenses at the same time, the Ultimate Warrior has surrendered to me, as of this date, the Intercontinental Championship. I have declared the title vacant and furthermore, I have ordered that a tournament be held to determine who will become the new Intercontinental Champion. The pairings and participants involved in a tournament will be announced next week. Thank you. So, we now have the major plot development. We know that Hogan will not get a shot at the Intercontinental title, and we now know that the Ultimate Warrior is no longer the Intercontinental Championship. And again, rationalization given, Warrior can't handle it. Now, that's not actually what they're saying, but they are living in this very kayfabe world where you have to defend the championship. It's always been 30 days. I've never heard anything less. I've never heard anyone say, you have to defend the championship within 15 days. So they're saying that the warrior couldn't possibly schedule the appropriate amount of title defenses to uh, maintain both. I say, bullshit, but whatever. I mean, come on. It is sort of... A shitty part of history that doesn't get overlooked because I know people talk about it and people think about it, but the whole champion versus champion title for title was true, but it didn't really have an impact. It didn't really let us show how dominant one person is. You know, I saw the Warrior come out for an interview at the Superstars tapings immediately after Mania, and of course, he just has the one belt, which was, I guess, was a dead giveaway as well that he wasn't going to be both champions. But aside from that, Granted, awesome moment of him in the ring in Toronto with all his face paint broken off and both belts and the pyrotechnics. I don't know. Would it have been better to see him surrender the championship in person? Would that have made him look weak? Or could they have not come up with a better idea? You know, maybe the Warrior comes out and says that the Intercontinental Championship is uh, 
uh, a stepping stone and a pure representation of the power of a WWF superstar. And so that championship must be defended or someone must claim the championship so I will know who can ascend to the throne of the warrior. And that's just off the top of my head. All right. And I'm just some random dude. All right. I don't know. I'm just thinking that possibly they could have thought of something better. But I don't know. I digress. So on the take did promise that next week we would get the parents and participants. And on the April 21st episode of WWF Superstars, we did get the first public viewing of the bracket. Vince McMahon and Jesse the Body Ventura talk about it as they show the graphic over the crowd during the Superstars taping. Uh, And Vince lets us know that these are indeed the matches, which we will get into and discuss, I promise. Tito Santana versus the African Dream Akeem. Brutus the Barber Beefcake versus Canadian Strongman and Cigarette Entrepreneur Dino Bravo. Uh, alleged homicidal maniac, Superfly Jimmy Snuka, takes on Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning. And in the final match of the first round, model Rick Martell, the arrogant one, takes on Rowdy Roddy Piper. Vince asks Jesse for his thoughts, and Jesse says, Well, you know, McMahon, this is the first time, my first time seeing the bracket, and so I'm just going to give you my gut reaction. And my gut reaction is the guy who's actually going to win the whole thing, McMahon, so maybe I shouldn't have given this as my answer, but it's Mr. Perfect. And then he does indeed say again that it's his gut reaction, and that could change, McMahon. I reserve the right to change my pick, but it looks to me like Mr. Perfect's going to go all the way. Now, a tournament like this, definitely warrants further investigation, okay? I wanted to sort of look at the participants and see if everybody agreed that they were worthy of being in the actual tournament itself because a couple of things, and again, I'm such a WrestleMania six like Mark, and I'm so ingrained into that pay-per-view that, of course, the first thing that popped into my head was like, okay, so... Let's look at these guys in relationship to WrestleMania 6. Because to me, in my memory, in my childhood, I guess in my actual reality, that's sort of the measuring stick that I have for a person's worthiness. So let's look at these only from the context of WrestleMania 6 to begin with, okay? Right off the bat, we've got a match in Tito Santana and the African Dream, Akeem, which to me, through the lens, again, of WrestleMania Six, is, well, unfortunately, and I don't mean this to throw shade, a couple of losers, all right? Now, Tito Santana is a former Intercontinental Champion in his own right, and uh, African Dream Akeem is a former sane man named the One Man Gang. So, they're both a couple of formers, but uh, Akeem got his ass absolutely handed to him uh, by his former Twin Tower partner, the Big Boss Man, at WrestleMania Six. And Tito Santana was the human sacrifice that was served up to the newly single Barbarian, okay? So, does it make sense that these guys are in here? Well, I mean, I would absolutely say having Tito Santana in something like this is a good idea regardless. I don't care if yesterday he just lost to the Brooklyn Brawler. I'm sure there were some shenanigans afoot that can easily explain his loss to a lower-end competitor. So, having Tito this this guy who's still here from the old rock and wrestling era, a former Intercontinental Champion himself, I I absolutely see that. Akeem, especially given the way that his fate is delivered to him in this tournament, could have been replaced with somebody. Now, I don't know who, all right, and it certainly, um, 
you know, if you consider that Tito's a guy who's down on his luck, Akeem's a guy who's down on his luck, you know, having Tito win. It's just, but you know, like I said, through the lens of Mania 6, a couple of losers. Now, big contrast in the next contest, Canadian strongman Dino Bravo, I believe, beat Hacksaw Jim Duggan by DQ, uh, which was a large feat. Uh, large feet. I don't know. I feel like there's a joke there about somebody's foot, but I'm not. I don't have anything for it. Brutus of Barber Beefcake. I mean, look. Jesse might think Mr. Perfect's the shoe in. If you're asking, especially a what am I seven here? Yeah, seven year old me. Brutus the Barber Beefcake has to be the absolute number one guy in this tournament in terms of the shoe in to win. He just ended Mr. Perfect's. Perfect streak, perfect record, whatever you want to call it, at WrestleMania six. I mean, that's it's interesting to me. It's I don't think it stands up as that because as this is what I'm about to pontificate because of Brutus's injury. But to me, that's like the one B storyline coming out of WrestleMania six. Now I know it doesn't end up being that, but if you again, if you're asking me as a kid, it's like, oh my God, Hogan lost to the Warrior and Brutus beat Mister Perfect. Now, I would definitely say that if you're looking at a... If you want to pretend that WrestleMania Six is a double main event, well, the other main event would be like the mixed tag in terms of the card placement, build, etc., etc. Now, I know it's kind of an attraction, but I think that's what makes it the second half of this, you know, made-up big double main event. But Brutus winning and defeating Perfect, you could arguably say clean. I know that Perfect hit the post, but it's still a legal maneuver. It's not like Brutai gets disqualified. So, you know, I think these two make sense. Also, about Dino Bravo, I don't have a ton to say, and I'm not going to make any more jokes about his execution gangland style, except I hope he had one last smoke. Okay, there, there's my last joke. But I always, at this point in time, uh, my, the, the young version of myself, I saw Dino Bravo as ultimate warriors, like ultimate rival, no pun intended. Um, especially when you consider the fact that that, main event that had the boxer dude Buster Douglas featured what is a Hogan and Savage and then Warrior and Dino and it's like the winners go to Mania to fight it's like the last stop could this be a potential change to the main event at Wrestlemania because Savage and Hogan are Superman and Lex Luthor I guess just to use comics and then uh no, let's change that. Let's have it this way. Super, uh, Hulk Hogan is Batman and Macho Man is Joker because that makes the Macho Man cooler. And so Ultimate Warrior is Superman and Dino Bravo is Lex Luthor, which is just a whole other thing. But I, I saw them as like lo- rivals who were locked throughout time and destiny to do, to do battle with one another. Why? Be- you know, because I'm seven years old. Give me a break. So it makes sense to have Dino in this going for the Intercontinental title. Superfly Jimmy Snuka versus Mr. Perfect. Again... A couple of, well, losers from WrestleMania 6. Superfly getting manhandled while wearing his wife's underwear and by the ravishing Rick Rude, uh, who is being primed as a number one contender even as early as right now in these superstars that I'm watching as he's working out with Bobby the Brain Heenan and challenging the Ultimate Warrior to a match that he can't refuse, according to him. Mr. Perfect, of course, we just talked about. I don't know how much further I need to go. Now, he's definitely the right person to win this tournament, in my opinion, looking at the field. But, again, it's at least he's fighting another loser, I guess. Okay, And I, I don't have anything to say about the Superfly. I mean, he's one of those guys that was never going to win a title, in my opinion. I mean, I don't... He, when he was up higher on the card, you know, he hasn't been there in a long time. And this is like his last run, in quotation marks... 
as a name guy in the WWF. And then it's kind of like, I don't know. It just And Perfect already beat him at the Survivor Series, remember, when uh, for Rude's Brood. They were the final in the Rude's Brood and Rowdy's Roddies, and uh, a straight-up Perfect Plex for the 1-2-3. So will history repeat itself? Now, the last match on paper looks just awesome to me, like, in terms of what it represents. Um, in terms of WrestleMania, Roddy Piper and Bad News fought to a double countout. Okay, so he's not really a loser. All right, and the model Rick Martel easily defeated Coco Beware, whether it's clipped or not, via the Boston Crab. So it makes sense that the model Ricky Martel is here. And and if you look at the tournament bracket, if Rick Martel can get past his end of the bracket, and somebody else can get past their end of the bracket, we might get a payoff that's been years in the making, potentially. But Roddy Piper again is one of those guys who at this time feels weird going for the Intercontinental title, in my opinion, because if Piper's not going to win the world title, does he even need a title? Now, of course, we'd learn at Royal Rumble 92, it could be pretty special to see the Hot Rod win a title, and then again at WrestleMania 8, pretty cool to see the Hot Rod defend a title. But this is 1990, it's still a little bit different, and again, he wasn't exactly victorious at WrestleMania. You know, if you want to look at it from a kayfabe perspective, okay, maybe the Barbarian can't come in here because, yes, he was victorious at WrestleMania, but that was his first singles victory. Well, Rude was victorious. Well, he's challenging the Warrior. Um, Who else was a single that was victorious? Dino, he's in here. Uh, Canadian Earthquake, well, he's squared up with Hogan as of this taping cycle, too. So your winners are moving on. I know I'm forgetting somebody. Dusty and Sapphire don't really count because they won as a tag team. The tag team matches don't count. Oh, Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase actually would... I mean, if you're going from a kayfabe perspective, Martel DiBiase or DiBiase, somebody else. Like, I mean, there... So there are... And Boss Man as well. Boss Man beat Akeem. So from a kayfabe perspective, we're definitely missing some higher tier superstars that were victorious at WrestleMania. But... This is the layout that we got, and this is the tournament that we got, and this isn't about changing history. It's just about, you know, deep diving and talking about it. Now, I do actually have two ideas of ways that you could change this and still get the same result, which I'm going to talk about at the very end before I sign off for the day. Uh, As of now, though, we're going to continue moving forward throughout history as it actually happened. Now, right after the brackets are announced, Mr. Perfect does come out, literally right after Jesse picked him to win the tournament, And he does win a job match, but he does do an insert promo where he talks about he's perfect and he's going to win the Intercontinental Championship, etc., etc. And then finally, because April 21st, remember, was when the bracket was revealed, on April 28th, over, well, close to a month after WrestleMania 6 went down, young Johnny C and the rest of the kidsters out there who were desperate and claiming for an Intercontinental Champion to be crowned got the first match of the tournament. And it was from that first round of the tapings all the way back on April 4th, so that makes sense. First round, first taping, it makes kayfabe sense, and, and, you know, we're off to the races. Now, I did watch this match, and I'm not here to review it or anything like that. It is Tito Santana and the African Dream Akeem. But I did want to mention just a couple of things that popped into my brain as I was watching it, because it wasn't a bad... I mean, it was quick, it was nothing, There's, there's nothing to really talk about here. But, you know, as, as Akeem comes out to the ring and is dancing, Vince McMahon has enough time to run down once again the entire tournament bracket. So that should tell you how much Akeem dancing we got. So JT 
purveyor of the North South Connection Podcast Network. This match is for you, if you could find it, because I had to dig through the depths of YouTube to find it. Jesse Ventura, of course, lovingly or unlovingly, calls Tito Santana Chico Santana the whole time, which is always fun. Uh, whether or not it's right or wrong, it, it, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to, to say that. But a 1990 Jesse Ventura, and now we do know that Tito and Jesse were close. I think I just saw some, well, I only read the headline. I'm not going to pretend like I read the article. Something where it said Jesse Ventura says that Chico Santana is his favorite guy to work with of all time. So, whatever. I also like how during this match, Akeem, after getting uh, we after getting very minor victories with with his offensive strikes and maneuvers, decides to dance after each one. It's good character stuff. I also noticed that Tito Santana reminds me of like a dad who's having a midlife crisis that just can't accept that his ex has moved on and remarried someone that's not only better looking but has a higher paying job as well because he is still wearing. The strike force tights. He's got the little Tito sombrero in the corner of his right ass cheek, and on the left hip, he still has the lightning bolt. And hey, strike force is fucking cool, and the lightning bolt is cool. I understand where he's coming from, but Chico, it's time to move on. I also didn't notice that Slick wore actual official Kangol hats because the kangaroo is right there on camera. And it just struck me as something that Vince wouldn't allow, like another brand represented on my brand. But whatever. This match doesn't really have a ton going for it. It's perfectly fine and serviceable. But there is a real fun moment where Akeem wants to test his strength. And Tito is like, okay. And as soon as he grabs the uh, Akeem's hand, because he's only got one hand in the air, uh, Tito totally goes for it and just yanks and cranks on the arm and you know does a, a twist with it and starts beating the shit out of Akeem's arm like okay if you're gonna give me your hand I'm just gonna take advantage of it it's like one of the smartest babyface things I've ever seen from this era at least in recent memory uh Jesse confirms that he only calls Tito Santana Chico Santana McMahon because I've known him since the old days in Tijuana before we either one of us were wrestling so to me, I want like a prequel movie of Jesse and Tito uh, surviving the dangerous undergrounds of lucha wrestling in Tijuana in the 70s or the late 60s or something before either one of them was famous. It sounds like a great original show that can be on Peacock and deliver it to me now. Tito tries to finish the match with the figure four at first, which was uh, absolutely makes sense and that's absolutely his thing, but man... The I was like, oh shit, it's 1990 and Tito's going for the figure four. Because I always think of Tito winning with the flying forearm. And speaking of which, that jalapeno does fly out of its uh, jar straight into the face of the African Dream Akeem. And he gets knocked out of the ring for the SummerSlam 93 Yokozuna victory. Although Tito Santana, in retrospect, always has and will be cooler than the USA variant of Lex Luger, even with the Strike Force Lightning Bolt still on his tights. So, that sort of sums up the first match. First round, perfectly serviceable for superstars. And, you know, it made me think of some fun things. So I'm giving it a thumbs up for that. Absolutely. But, the next match was also from the April 4th tapings. And it aired the next week, which was May 5th, again, on Superstars. And it's weird to me that it's the third match in the bracket view. Because you would think the next match would be Beefcake and Dino. But it is indeed, from the second part of the bracket, uh, Mr. Perfect and Shumi Shumi Superfly, Jimmy Snuka. 
And so much like before, you know, I'm not really here to review the match, but I wanted to just sort of bring to the table a couple of things that stood out to me during this contest. Uh, number one, Perfect is flying solo. No more genius for Mr. Perfect. I guess that haircut at WrestleMania Six was the last straw. There's some fun continuity as Vince asks Jesse if Mr. Perfect is still his favorite. And Jesse's great here because... I mean, obviously, he's going to go for the heel. And he's like, yeah, Mr. Perfect's still my pick. But, you know, technically, Chico Santana's in best position to win this thing, McMahon. <laughs> and it's like, well, yes. Tito's the only person to have wrestled so far, technically, in terms of the television presentation. And so, he's the only person in the semis. And so, he is technically the best person positioned to win. But, I don't know, it's just very Jesse. Very, very Jesse-like. Superfly comes out, and he's not super interesting to me, but what is interesting is how Mr. Perfect sells his offense. He's flip-flopping and flying all over the ring uh, from, like, chops and little kicks. Like, he takes a chop and falls out of the outside of the ring, and that's just, like, one spot. But then he falls out of the ring numerous times in this match from things like Snooka's chops and headbutts. And so, of course, Mr. Perfect putting on a selling clinic. I guess one could argue whether or not it looks ridiculous. There's a fun sequence of pin reversals where Perfect actually does like a head scissors takedown to Jimmy Snuka, which really surprised me. And the match does have a very quick, fast pace. The ending. Okay, the ending is a little ridiculous. Alright? So, Snuka gets rammed into the turnbuckle, and of course Perfect learns this is a bad idea when it comes to Snuka. You don't go after the head. He's kind of sort of the opposite of Thanos, if you will. Uh, they chase each other outside. They come inside. Perfect eats another chop and flies into the corner, okay? As Jimmy Snuka pursues him into the corner, that means walking towards him, Perfect sort of leans down and trips the legs and gets on top for a pinning predicament, okay? Uh, very typical. It kind of looks like he's going for a slingshot, but he just decides to lean forward and pin. Here's the issue, though, all right? Perfect puts his feet on the ropes for leverage, which I absolutely have no problem with, okay? Like, zero. Uh, even though he, Mr. Perfect is quote-unquote perfect, it's sort of like perfect, pardon the expression, that he has to cheat to beat Snuka because you're not really perfect, you're just a fraud. But here's the, here's the kicker, okay? Perfect puts his feet on the top ropes for, on the top, puts his feet on the top rope for leverage, as opposed to, like, the middle or bottom. And Perfect is practically surfing on Jimmy Snuka's body. <laughs> I mean, he's really up there, and it's absolutely ludicrous to assume that referee Joey Morella doesn't see this. Of course, we all know that referee Joey Morella is incompetent, according to Jesse, because Joey Morella uh, failed to count the Phantom 3 count during WrestleMania 3, so I guess this is apropos for that. But it is a very ridiculous-looking cheat-to-win, one, two, three. And the Superfly beats up Mr. Perfect for some good measure at the end, but I don't know. The, it was fine. Like, it was totally fine. The pin was... <laughs> like, it was so ridiculous, I just had to laugh it off. But I thought I would. I thought I should mention it, just in case anybody out there is like, Wait a minute, Monsoon! That's the worst pinfall combination I've ever seen! We get a couple of real quick promos before this episode of Superstars ends. Uh, Dino Bravo says he's the world's strongest man and the next intercontinental champion. I say he looks high as fuck. Brutus then concedes that Dino Bravo may be the world's strongest man, but, and these are his words, next week on TV, he is going to put him to sleep. 
So thanks a lot, Brutus. Maybe say the name of the show you're going to be on, perhaps, or the day that I can watch it. Now, I know maybe not the day specifically, but how about just a good old next week on Superstars, as opposed to next week on TV. Our next match is a bit of an interesting chapter in this intercontinental title tournament scenario. It takes place on April 24th, 1990, which is the last day of the taping cycle that I mentioned. Because recall, I said the tournament takes place over the 4th, the 23rd, and the 24th, and, well, we've had two matches that both took place on the 4th, and here's a match in the first round that takes place on the 24th, so I really hope the other match that took place on the 23rd is the other first round match. That way we could safely say the end of the first round, the semis, and the finals all took place on the 24th in at least order, chronologically. Because, you know, it's really it's really a bad idea to, even if you're going to tape it, to air it in order, you should probably tape it in order, right? Right? Anywho, it is indeed Rowdy Roddy Piper versus the model Rick Martell, and it is on Wrestling Challenge, whereas the other matches were all on Superstars, including, well, we'll get there. So, this match could have hypothetically aired on May 12th or the 13th, depending on your market. I know in my market, for example, I got Superstars on Saturday, and I got Challenge on Sunday on different channels, nonetheless. Same affiliate, both Fox affiliates, but different channels, because I got a Fox out of Dayton, Ohio, home of the King of the Ring, 93, and Cincinnati, Ohio, home of uh, WCW NWO sold out 2000, we'll say. So, uh, so yeah, so I- I'm in a weird, unique position here. I don't think I saw this match live. I- I- Wrestling Challenge was harder to come by um, because sometimes that Cincinnati affiliate didn't always come in clear. Uh, but, you know, that means that Gorilla and Bobby are on the call. That's the important thing because it's the... Uh, wrestling challenge show we get some quick insert promos earlier in the show before the match actually airs uh rick the model martel says roddy piper i will use me you as my stepping stone some would call that confidence but who needs confidence when you have arrogance spray 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 so i do a bad martel impression i never claim to have a good one so yeah uh, Roddy Piper says, I'm thankful that I'm not Ricky Brood. No, he doesn't say that here. He says, well, it's the Intercontinental Championship Tournament. You know, the, the model had braces when he was a kid. And the model, he did a backflip, and his braces got caught on the carpet and ripped his teeth right out. And the closest you're going to get to that belt is a model of it. Now, those things don't really go together. And the model, Rick Martel, does indeed have all of his teeth. So I'm not sure about the validity of this backflipping scenario. But, a nice, fun, crazy, batshit promo from the Rowdy One. Uh, Gorilla, on commentary, lets us know that the winner will get Mr. Perfect. And that means, in his book, any of the three potentials from the bottom half of the bracket would make good champions. That being uh, Mr. Perfect, Rowdy Piper, or Rick the Model Martel. And he says, You know why, Brain? Because none of them are your guys! And the Brain's like, Well, that's because of President Jack Tunney. But then that conversation fades away. So no further explanation is given. But it does indeed make me curious. Especially because I know how this whole thing plays out. When Roddy Piper comes to the ring, he has his trademark crazy eyes. And when he takes off his kilt, he takes it off in a hilarious way. Where he's kind of like, 
modeling as he's taking it off because he takes one side off and sort of shimmies and then takes the other side off and then sort of shimmies and turns to the crowd like he's on the end of a catwalk it's just really great character stuff and it's it's just fun to see something like this because you know when it comes to this era of the product um most of my knowledge uh is you know not i was gonna say it's mostly i remember pay-per-view to pay-per-view because there's so much quote-unquote downtime like, this Superstar stuff, I know I've seen it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, but it doesn't stand out in my memory. So, if nothing else, this whole little experiment has, has really just made me happy to see some of these guys in their element back in the day. Now, after Piper is done modeling, Martel sees this, and, and he goes towards the ref, and he demands some sort of action be taken, because this, this fake modeling by Piper has really thrown him through a loop. The ref just can't do anything about it, though. So the model grabs the arrogance bottle and starts spraying the ring down, as if this will cleanse my memory of the horrendousness of Piper doing the modeling. Uh, Martel puts the bottle back down in the corner, and Roddy Piper approaches the arrogance bottle with referee Joey Morella in tow. He asks the referee to remove the bottle from ringside, but Martel attacks and the bell rings. This, of course, causes Piper to go crazy for the rest of the match. Uh, they slug it out. Piper does his tiny eye poke. A lot of fun. You know, the match is pretty basic. I do get to see Piper break out his, like, combo punches that ends with that tiny little back fist as well. Uh, I don't recall him doing that a lot on pay-per-view matches that I've seen, but I remember him doing it, and this here really took me back. Uh, about three minutes in, Martel attempts to use the arrogance on Piper, uh, but Piper, intelligently, grabs referee Morella and uses him as a human shield. Keep this in your memory, folks. Piper often uses whatever's in front of him as a shield against arrogance. Meanwhile, Piper is pretty much in control for the rest of the match. You can tell that even though it's two superstars going, uh, Piper is probably the type of guy who's like, well, I should probably be on offense most of the time, you know? Um... And then there's another eye rake, though. But this time, it's the model doing it to Piper. So Piper's, um, I'm doing the finger quotes thing here, blinded from the eye poke. And Martel goes for the arrogance again. He sprays it, but Piper's instincts kick in. And even though he's blinded, he ducks underneath the actual spray of the cologne and starts shoulder tackling Martel into the turnbuckle. And that's pretty fun. The bottle crashes onto the ring ground. Uh, and both guys watch it fall, and then they scramble for it like it's a fumble. Uh, they have a tug-of-war over the bottle of Arrogance Spray. The model kicks Piper low and does indeed gain possession of the Arrogance. Now, Piper immediately starts to create distance between himself and the model and goes outside looking for a shield. The model Rick Martel follows, and now both men are on the outside. The model sprays the Arrogance, but Piper has obtained a steel chair, and he blocks the spray with this chair like he's goddamn Captain Scotland. Avengers, block the arrogance. Woo-ha! And, and he, you know, so the model's like, what's this? And he sprays again. Piper again blocks with the chair slash shield. Model sprays again. Now, here's where the kicker really comes into place. Piper blocks again. But as he blocks the arrogance, he sort of has to push the chair forward to make sure he's safe. Now the chair sort of bumps into Martel slash the arrogance model, but a uh, bottle, excuse me. But you could definitely say the contact has been made with the chair. Okay, 
This is the end of it. Referee Morella has had enough. He calls for the bell. Both guys go inside the ring, even though the match is over. Now, the model is in position to spray Roddy Piper with the arrogance. However, the model has the bottle of arrogance dangerously close to his own face. Piper runs at Martell and smacks the arrogance bottle with the chair into the model's face. It's a goddamn Van Arrogance Nader, and it was fantastic to see. The ref tells the Fink that it is indeed a double disqualification for arrogance and chair-related shenanigans, and now Mr. Perfect is in the finals. For our next match, we travel one day into the past to the August 23rd taping for the final match of the first round. Okay, I guess you could say it's okay to do this match out of order with the other match as long as the finals and semifinals took place at that wrestling challenge taping. Well, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, that's not how this played out. It is indeed Dino Bravo versus Brutus the Barbarine Beefcake. On commentary during their entrances, Vince and Jesse talk about how Perfect is now in the perfect position in the tournament as he has a bye all the way to the finals. So if your area, like mine, played Superstars first that weekend, well, spoiler alert, you're fucked. We just told you what happened. Now, the record books indicate that this match took place on May 12th, but it is again the August 23rd taping. Okay, so the day before Piper and Martell. Vince tells Jesse he needs for him to make an official pick for this match. Well, it's a toss-up, McMahon. Dino Bravo's obviously stronger, and he's got the manager, but Brutus has got those hedge clippers. The match uh, starts underway, and we get an insert promo from Mr. Perfect. And he says he will defeat Beefcake or Bravo on the way to becoming the Intercontinental Champion. Now, that's very strange, because... He's got to buy into the finals. And the winner of this match still has to get through Santana. And honestly, folks, I have no evidence to back this up aside from the next minute of what happens. This really makes me feel like they filmed this perfect insert promo, perhaps before they even knew like how the tournament was going to be structured or laid out. I don't know why they would do that. But here's the, here's the real kicker or solidifier for my theory. As soon as Perfect's insert promo is done, Vince immediately starts playing damage control on commentary, as we all know Vince McMahon is to do. He has to make sure that everything is perfectly nice and neat in a straight line. And he says that, well, Jesse, it sounds to me like Mr. Perfect believes that the winner of this match will defeat Tito Santana, and by virtue of that, Mr. Perfect will have to face one of these men in the finals. I don't know. I, d I don't know. Either that or Perfect just fucked up the promo, which obviously, hey, cocaine's a hell of a drug, allegedly, so I don't know. Now, this match, in my opinion, is not good. It's the worst of all the matches that I've watched in the tournament, and I'm not even going to cover much except the ending. Brutus has Dino in the sleeper. Jimmy Hart jumps up on the apron to distract. Mr. Perfect is here, though. He's at the taping. Well, we'll find out why in a moment. But he pulls Beefcake out of the ring and starts beating the shit out of him with his fist. Now, of course, this makes perfect sense because at WrestleMania 6, we've talked about it. Perfect Beefcake. I mean, this is a continuation of that. 
After a few quick punches, though, Brutus really starts to turn the tide on Mr. Perfect, and Brutus starts beating Mr. Perfect down, to the point where Perfect is now down on the outside, and Beefcake's like, what? Come on, come on. Referee Hebner finally undistracts himself from Jimmy Hart and goes over to see Beefcake standing over Perfect. Now, technically, Hebner hasn't seen any rule breaks yet. He sees that Mr. Perfect is here, but he has not seen that Mr. Perfect has contributed to the outcome of the match, so he can't call for a DQ. Dino Bravo follows outside now, and him and Brutus start, you know, throwing fists at one another, and referee Hebner starts counting. Perfect is on the ground for the entire rest of this sequence. So, really good stuff here by the referee, Brutus, and Mr. Perfect. And it's as if they could hear my compliment because they decide to do something ridiculously stupid right away. Right as the referee hits 9 in his 10 count for a count out, Brutus slides mostly into the ring. He's about 60 to 66% of his body inside the ring. Now, in any other match we've ever watched, this would entail the ref stopping his count and starting over. But since the script calls for a double count out, Dino Bravo pulls Beefcake out, and the ref just keeps counting to 10. Now, Dino does slide right in as the ref hits 10, and uh, the announcers are like, oh, it looks like Bravo's won it. And, you know, Jimmy Hart and Dino Bravo are excited, thinking they've won too, which I guess would make sense. However, it's a double count out. And look, this is a whole other can of of worms, okay? Uh, It's like... One thing I don't like about tournaments is when baby faces get a bye, because that doesn't make sense to me. So right now, you know, the, the face and the basic structure of the 1990 Intercontinental Championship Tournament has revealed itself to us in almost its entirety. There are four first-round matches, no semifinal matches. Perfect wins a match, gets a bye. Tito wins a match, gets a bye. The next match is the finals, Tito versus Perfect. It's interesting. Like, I don't have a problem. I don't see why, if you're going to do this anyway, why not have Tito wrestle uh, Bravo, at least to get to the finals? That way your baby face has really earned his way. And... You know, since we all know Perfect's going to win, uh, maybe an excuse for why Perfect had an easier road to victory. I don't know. I guess I'm always thinking you should probably protect your baby faces, but I don't know. Tito doesn't really need protecting. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to me. And in terms of a tournament, well, it's not much of a tournament. That's what's kind of the weird thing about the whole thing and probably why it doesn't hold up much in memory, unless, of course, it's a very vague perception of, ah, oh, you know what, that was fun, and what a time, what a slice of history, what a fun thing to pull out and look at, which I will say, even though we have one match to go, I'm extremely grateful to have gone on this journey, but in the annals of, like, Federation history, it's not a grueling one-night contest to become the champ in Atlantic City, if you know what I mean, and it's not the brilliant storytelling that the Deadly Game tournament would be as well. It's just sort of a, eh, Whatever. Actually, I would if this was just the King of the Ring tournament and it was one night, I would actually say that's kind of interesting booking for King of the Ring even. I would think you need to have at least one semifinal match. But hey, I'm not a wrestling booker. I'm not in charge. Whatever. As this episode of Superstars ends, we have our finals. 
And Tito says he'll make sure next week Mr. Perfect is no longer perfect. Well, I think Brutus already took care of that, but whatever. Perfect says, Santana, you've never even seen me at my best, and next week I will be the perfect Intercontinental Championship. Er, Intercontinental Champion, excuse me. I, I must be the perfect podcaster because of my errant language use. But that takes us to May 19th. Almost two months of real life kid of real kid life without an Intercontinental Champion. My God, I must be chomping at the bit for someone to hold the title. Now here's the big goof of this entire thing, folks. This match was indeed taped on April 23rd. So the Intercontinental Championship Tournament technically ended before the first round did. Because that Piper Martell match was taped the day after the finals. Whatever. It's not as egregious as some of that shit you hear about in WCW. Like, I, I can't pull any specifics, but like, uh, I don't know, like the Horsemen win the tag titles, but then they like lose them before they win them. Win them. I don't know if that's like, if I'm using that context properly, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. So let's quickly just cover the finals of this bad boy. Like I said, May 19th, 1990, Tito Santana, or Chico, depending on how well and how long you've known him, taking on the man without a manager because the genius is gone the one and only Mr. Perfect so it is again on superstars so Vince and Jesse are indeed on the call during Mr. Perfect's entrance you know Vince is just doing normal Vince McMahon style commentary and it equates to basically this well this man certainly believes he will without question be the next intercontinental champion but, in order to do so, he must defeat a former Intercontinental Champion himself in one Tito Santana. Now, right as Vince says, Santana, Mr. Perfect's theme ends, and Tito Santana's theme starts. And Jesse's like, well, geez, McMahon, what a nice guy you are running in front of the Fink like that. You just introduced the guy, you're doing his job for him. And then the Fink's like, his opponent from Tijuana, Mexico. And then Jesse's like, see, here it is now, the announcement. Vince McMahon takes back control of the broadcast, and he's like, all right, all right, Tito Santana, the favorite here. And Jesse goes, what? Like, it's the dumbest thing he's ever heard in his life. What bookie are you talking to, McMahon? Well, it's close, but Santana unquestionably has the edge. Well, you and I are coming from different sides of the street then, McMahon. And then under his breath, Vince is like, well, there's no question about that. The match, though, does begin. And I, I think I've sort of copped to this over the history of my podcast life. I'm really not the best person to review this match. And it's a little bit longer than the others. And I didn't just want to go through this thing hold for hold. I will say this. It is a very solid and entertaining match. And I don't have any problems with it at all. And throughout the match, I did notice that there are a decent amount of Tito Santana shirts in the audience. And I was thinking to myself, wow, Tito's really over. And then I was like, oh, yes, they're in Texas. And I was just sort of happy. I was like, man, I'm good for Tito. I'm happy for the fans that paid and got to see this. Like, I don't know. It was just, it was a nice thing to sort of experience. And I'm really glad that I watched it. And this is absolutely the best environment to capitalize on Tito Santana's brand value. And that might sound ridiculous and very modern, but I am okay with that because I think it's the truth. Now, what I've decided to do is recommend this match, not only on the, you know, the bell-to-bell -bell action, but 
also on the entertainment value that I was given by Vince and Jesse on commentary. But like I said, the match is fine, and I will dive into the ending because it's important. But here are some of the random things that are mentioned during the match on commentary that will hopefully entice you to watch it for yourself. We get discussions of Tijuana McMahon, Jesse in the military, the Tijuana style of wrestling, (laughs) Jesse the Body's old Tijuana nickname. We get, what about over? Uh, Jesse calls out Vince McMahon and wants to know how much ring time he's had. Uh, At one point, Vince says perfect is lucky and Jesse doesn't let it go for the rest of the match. Uh, Jesse gets enraged when Chico Santana uses the ring post to his advantage. We get Jesse defining what a Tijuana brawl is. And then, towards the end, we get Jesse fucking flip-flopping on himself and commending Chico Santana for cheating. He talks himself into it throughout the course of the match. And Tito cheating, and I'm doing the finger quotes thing here because he just rams Perfect's leg into the post, for goodness sakes. It's not really cheating. But that's sort of where the big finish comes into play after Perfect gets his leg rammed into the post. Tito spins his finger in the air and calls for the figure four, but Bobby the Brain Heenan is now at ringside. He's made his way down. Jesse does a great job of sort of explaining this away by saying that Bobby the Brain Heenan has had enough. He's in the back watching this match like everybody else, and he's just here to try to stand up for Mr. Perfect because no one else will because Chico is clearly flagrantly breaking the rules, McMahon. His figure four sort of gets jacked up when he sees Bobby the Brain and, you know, pays attention to him. Perfect starts to get back up, and Tito calls for the flying forearm. Bobby the Brain gets on the apron, however, and Chico breaks his uh, his stride for the flying forearm and goes over to sort of throw shade at Bobby the Brain. He eventually turns around, remembering he's in the middle of the finals of the 1990 Intercontinental Championship Tournament, and Perfect straight up rolls him up in an inside cradle for the one, two, three. After the match, Mr. Perfect gets on the house mic and introduces his brand new perfect manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan. They hug. Bobby's allowed to hold the Intercontinental title into the air right in front of the camera. And Jesse's like, Bobby has the gold again. Tremendous. Especially when you consider the fact that the IC title was pretty much the Heenan family title. When you think about Rude having it and Bobby always wanting to have gold. And of course he lost the tag titles at WrestleMania. Now he's got it again. It's just really nice synergy for also the, for the Heenan character and for Perfect. Because he's dropped the genius and now he has Bobby the Brain. And I think most of us think of this as a legendary configuration and for good purpose. But thus, folks... The, the finals have concluded, and this ends the tournament, but begins a new chapter for the title, and also a new chapter for Mr. Perfect as well. Overall, lots of fun. Super thumbs up. Look, it's kind of a bad tournament, okay? But, in my opinion, the time spent watching these random episodes of Superstars and Challenge was time well spent. It was a nice you know, stroll down Nostalgia Lane, and look, this stuff's not on the network, I watched it on YouTube, and guess what was a side effect of me watching this? I got to see Hulk Hogan get taken out by the earthquake, I got to see Tugboat pleading for your letters 
to, to restore the Hulk's greatness. I got to see all of those awesome, ravishing Rick Rude promos where he's training, and then he cuts his hair and calls out the warrior. And I was like, man, I was also blown away that they pretty much solidify all the SummerSlam matches right after Mania immediately. Like, Bad News starts feuding with Jake. They just, you know, Boss Man and DiBiase are doing their house show thing. Like, it was just so much fun to go down Nostalgia Lane. Now, I did promise or tease an alternate route for this tournament. I basically have two different ideas, and I'm not going to, like, dive super deep. My first one being... Uh, if you want to do the exact same finals, I'm totally okay with that. But if you also need to fill time during your Superstars taping, just have it so maybe when Brutus goes to dive back in the ring, you know, Dean, uh, do something where maybe Perfect grabs his leg and the ref can't see it. That way you continue the Perfect uh, Beefcake feud and Dino gets in the ring before Brutus does and, and wins that match. And you get to have Tito fight Dino some ry- some unconventional rhyming there accidentally you get to have them actually have a semifinals match and then i was thinking since tito santana and perfect have a better match on saturday night's main event anyway just make that the finals and then you have perfect still doing his thing but also doing it on national television uh during a special and maybe that makes his win feel a little bit more special Now, the other idea I had also involves that Tito Perfect match on Saturday night's main event, but it also involves uh, a different outcome for the tournament. So, and and I didn't, I, I tried to come up with different configurations of how to do this. I think there's a way where you can do sort of something where, you know, Tito wins. Dino wins, like pretend Dino wins in that way that I described, where Beefcake, um, oh, you know, uh, gets held out by Mr. Perfect, okay? And then Mr. Perfect beats Snooka, and then have the model beat Rowdy Piper uh, by some sort of shenanigans. You know, maybe he gets distracted by Bad News Brown, or maybe Mr. Perfect, or something like that, to where there's actually a semifinals match between Rick the Model Martel and Mr. Perfect. Maybe, you know, he, uh, maybe Mr. Perfect interferes or something like that. I, I don't really know. But imagine there's a semifinals match where Perfect and Rick Martel are actually going to go one-on-one with one another, okay? And not only would it be a novelty, but maybe they shake hands before the match or something like that, like so showing some sort of heel uh, alignment, even though they have to do battle with one another. And maybe right as the match starts and the bell rings, they're sort of circling around the ring, measuring each other. And then Brutus the Barber Beefcake walks down and just trips Rick the Model Martel. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this would do a couple things. One, it would get you out of having to have a heel versus heel match on TV. And... By tripping Rick the Model Martel right away, the model shoots right up and is angry like, Hey, what are you doing, Brutus the Beefcake Barber? You interfered in my match. But then the bell rings, and Mr. Perfect's disqualified because the beefer hurt Rick the Model Martel. And as soon as Rick the Model Martel realizes he's won by DQ, he's kind of like, Oh, yes, of course I did. And Mr. Perfect is, of course, furious, and he sort of gets cheated out of his match, but rules are rules. This leads to a tournament final, which is Tito versus Rick the Model Martel. Finally, 
a match that you can point to and be like, this is the culmination of the Strike Force uh, feud, and this will put a bow on it. Excuse me again. And maybe Tito wins. So Tito's won the 1990 Intercontinental Championship Tournament. And then on Saturday night's main event, maybe they give Mr. Perfect a shot because even though the rules were followed, it's clear that Brutus of Barber Beefcake sort of cheated Perfect out of his spot. And then you do the whole thing with Bobby the Brain joining Mr. Perfect. Perfect wins on Saturday night's main event, beats Tito for the Intercontinental Championship, and you get the same result. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, the way it worked out was fine. Again, I'm a little eh on the fact that there's no semifinals. But this will conclude the tournament, our discussion of it, and our first episode of Bright Man. I thank you so much for coming along on this. Again, if you like this show, stick around and see what bright ideas I might have in the future. And thanks so much for just listening to anything here in the Aqua K feed. And remember, folks, when you listen to an Aqua K podcast, that's your way of saying to the rest of the world, a winner is you. <laughs>